You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hello there, I'm Ollie Southgate, and from the Broadway Podcast Network, this is Putting It Together, where on the first Friday of each month, I sit down with Broadway's best business minds to talk about the state of the art and their role in keeping the world's biggest theatre town at the top of the list. On this month's show... For me, it's all about audience development. When I'm looking at ticketing data, it's all about who's buying our tickets and how can we get more of those people in there? How did they come to us? What price did they convert at? All the different metrics that create a profile of who is buying for a particular show or industry-wide. I'm talking to Andrew Lowy, Director of North American Ticketing for Harry Potter and the Cursed Child and the mind behind Theatre 2050, an online thesis of what Broadway and American theatre may look like three decades from now. I thought like a half century check-in on where we are was kind of an interesting kind of thing to put out there, an aspiration that didn't seem too far away, but was kind of halfway through the century. We discuss his takes on everything from the streaming and broadcast of Broadway shows to the potential future of a United States national theater, and his takes as a ticketing professional on what selling Broadway tickets will look like post-pandemic. So let's find out how Andrew Lowy puts it all together. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. My start in the theater really comes from my parents, actually, which is uh, something just wonderful to think about that. My parents, when I was very young, brought me to Paper Mill Playhouse in New Jersey. I'm from northern New Jersey, and they established very early in my life that going to the theater is a special thing. And my parents, you know, when they were you know, dating, they would have a subscription to Paper Mill Playhouse. So the fact that they were able to share that with their kids as well. It's always something I found very special. And so Paper Mill is where I saw a lot of my first shows um, in the kind of late 80s, early 90s, which is kind of really fun to look back on at some of those big productions. But for me, that's really kind of where it started. And kind of going from there, they took me to see my first Broadway shows. I, my first Broadway show was seeing the revival of Grease with Adrian Zmed and Rosie O'Donnell. And I just thought that was the, the coolest night I've ever had at the theater. And it just kind of went from there. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and uh, how did that all transition into a career for you? I started, you know, like most people, you know, when you're in, in school, you're in high school, you're, you know, you're acting and you're just enjoying being a part of the process of being in the theater. But for me, I always knew I didn't have the stomach to kind of be an actor and kind of, be, kind of lead my life in the performance area. But I was always just so interested in the theater and the industry and just wanting to kind of know everything. And I, I went to college at Westchester University outside of Philadelphia, 
and that was a I got my theater arts general studies degree, which is kind of ironic for a, you know my concentration to be general studies. But I actually embraced that. I love kind of being a generalist in the theater and being able to kind of focus on so many different things. But really, I, I knew that I was going to, going to end up on the producing admin side of the theater just because that's kind of where I knew my passion was going to be. And so when I got out of college, I kind of went down the internship kind of early you know early jobs in th- that you'd try to get in the theater i was lucky enough to get you know internships and work at places like the eugene o'neill theater center i also worked at paper mill i worked at you know places like manhattan theater club which was wonderful the first broadway place I, i'd work with was manhattan theater club and I eventually ended up um, at Stuart thompson productions a wonderful producer general manager in the city and i worked on a ton of shows over a four-year period there with some wonderful people um, Stuart was a wonderful mentor to me and everyone else over there. And um, unfortunately, we lost Stuart in 2017. But um, the people in, in that office are still carrying on his legacy in a really wonderful way. And it's just it's exciting to, to see that still happen. Um, but I left Stuart's office and I actually moved to London for a year and a half and got my master's at the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama which was, you know, we'll call it some of the best 16 months of my life. I spent it, you know, studying theater in London and traveling all over Europe and seeing theater and just so many things outside of my comfort zone. And when I came back, I was lucky enough to get a job with Spaco, the wonderful entertainment advertising agency, um, working kind of in, more in the ticketing world, which I'd worked with a lot in my old job with Stuart. And I just kind of delved right into the world of, of ticketing there and, and then eventually ended up being the director of ticketing over at, at Spaco, doing a lot of ticketing strategies for Broadway shows and, and national tours and off-Broadway shows. And it was just an exciting place to be working on so many different shows with so many different people and different offices. And you're just you're touching a lot of different parts of the industry, which is always, always exciting me about being in an agency like that. Um, and last September, I got a different opportunity to work to move over to work full time for Harry Potter and the Cursed Child as the director of North American Ticketing. So in normal times, I'm supervising the strategy and operations for their Broadway production for San Francisco and for the forthcoming Toronto productions. So that's really kind of where I am now. And, you know, just we're over at Harry Potter trying to, you know, chart our return. And, and I think it's going to be exciting when we can. But uh, until then, we're just kind of working on how we come back. Your resume has some variation in it. But in the as you just said, in the last uh, five years or so, ticketing has been your main area of uh, expertise. Now, weirdly, despite, I mean, you know what my background is, despite that, you're actually yeah. the first ticketing professional I've had on this show in uh, in a little over a year. So would you mind explaining a little about what ticketing as a profession kind of encompasses and how that's different from just being, you know, a person who sells tickets like at a box office? Like, where does it fit into the overall ecosystem of a Broadway show? Yeah, it's interesting. This is a part of the, of the even just the ticketing industry, I really didn't understand until I was in it in the sense of I really look at myself as a strategist versus someone who works more in a box office where it looks more at, at a transactional level at, at, at how we kind of sell tickets. For me, I, I'm looking at everything as kind of a marketing strategist. For me, when I look at uh, at sales, of course I'm looking at you know revenue and average ticket price and all those things that are involved with how you know how we kind of grow our shows and kind of get towards recruitment and then obviously into profit. For me though, it's all about audience development. When I'm looking at at at, at ticketing data, it's all about who's buying our tickets and how can we get more of those people in there. How did they come to us? 
uh, what, what price did they convert at? All the different metrics that kind of can, can create a profile of who is, is buying for a particular show or industry-wide. And it's something that for me, it's something I focus on a ton as, as I'm looking at, at kind of you know, seasonal movements and kind of annual movements when we look at, the, at, at ticketing. For me, it's all about audience development. Who has been coming and, and who can we be, who are we not reaching that we should be reaching for? And sometimes that changes by the show we're working on. And for me, that's the excitement of working on the ticketing side. It's, it's, it's bringing more people into the pool for, for Broadway and for the shows I'm specifically working on. That's, that's the thing that always excites me about the ticketing versus like the, the day-to-day kind of box office stuff, which is wonderful and great and has its own kind of you know, merit in, certain, in, in different ways. For me, I just love focusing on the strategy part of it. Got it. And, and the, the strategy part of it to uh, a, a substantial degree does involve pricing and all the different wheels and cogs that could be turned there up until the pandemic at least it was it was the general going rhetoric that tickets were becoming you know far too expensive on broadway they're definitely a luxury product but do you think they were about where they needed to be or is anyone maybe getting a little greedy is there is there room to make it more affordable or is it just too expensive to run the show what are your thoughts on kind of the atp of broadway i i think all the things you just said at once <laughs> it's it, it's one of those things where in my heart I, I i do believe that theater tickets can be too expensive sometimes but i also at the same time from what you're saying it's the, the capitalization costs of producing on on broadway in 20 you know we'll call it 2020 when, when we, we last left off it, they, they were at a point where producers, if they're going to even the idea of even producing the show at all, you have to. They, they're looking at the model and saying we have to make X amount per week so that make sure we can cover our running costs. And if we make this much profit over X amount of weeks, we can recoup our investment. When it comes to commercial theater, that is the primary goal. And so it, it's it's a struggle because as, as as certain shows become you know sort of physical productions and just are frankly more labor intensive, they're just inherently going to become more expensive. And so it's tough for me to kind of corroborate both parts of that, right? The, 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 you know, the understanding that shows are expensive because, you know, people all, we also need to be paying people a, a living wage, especially as we've learned in this moment, a really kind of, kind of a healthy wage to do the kind of work that we're doing here. But at the same time, we want to try and find a balance to, to find some way to create more access for kind of middle price tickets, as I, as I think of it in my head, compared to where we were, the, the between, you know, 50 and $100 tickets versus, you know, the, the 150 to $200 tickets, which have become so customary when we talk, we talk about theater ticketing. I, I think it's, you know, before this, it, it was, there was a, a sense of greed in the sense of, you know, every show is just trying to kind of, you look at the grosses every week and you and you want to see, especially the hits, you want to see your, your show grow and kind of be able to attain a higher average ticket price so that you can return to their investors and go into profit. But it, it's it's just kind of the fundamental goal right now in the commercial theater, especially on Broadway, is, is to just try and yield as much as possible. And I that part is something I don't see change, really changing as much, especially after this moment with such losses that people are going to want to kind of yield as much as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think there's I think there's been some agreement on the fact that there's going to at least have to be some period of time where tickets are more affordable than they've ever been, you know, right at that opening point. Do you think that's an opening week issue or a month or maybe six months? And do you think those cheap seats will be 
cheap enough to get people to take chances on on coming back again to those you know crowded spaces? Yeah, I, I think I, I think there's a couple different answers to the question in the sense of I think it, it all depends on the timing. I think a lot of us in the industry think that you know the, the, the safest time to potentially come back, as from what we know, you know, as of this moment, is is probably in some time in the fall. And if that happens, where there's a sporadic you know kind of return in the fall, I think the entire fall through February is going to be a bit softer, just because people are going to be getting used to being in large gatherings again, not just at the theater, but in other parts of their lives. And so the, there's a this stigma about the theater, given how you know we always try to fit as many uh, many seats into a, a confined space. The theater is just like oh, going to the, the activity of going to the theater just always feels cramped. And so the idea for certain people, they might not be ready for that just yet, but for the people who do, you're going to want to incentivize them in some way to have to come. But the, the issue is going to become, it's going to be a lot of local people first. And there, and the, those people who are going to go there, there, it's only going to be a limited amount of those people. So a lot of shows are all going to be fighting for the same people. And price is going to be the thing that we're going to have. And hopefully there won't be too much of a race to the bottom to get people to come. But I really believe that if we, it is the fall, that we're, we're going to have some better weeks, hopefully around the holidays, maybe. But really through February, I think it's going to be a tougher time. At the same time, though, I do believe that as we get into March 22, when we see tourism maybe start to come back a little bit more, when some of those groups, which are another lifeblood of Broadway, start coming back, that's when I think that that the demand will increase to a point where the prices will also be able to come up in that moment. But I, I'm a little skeptical about it happening in this initial moment just because I think people are just going to take a little bit of time to feel out being in that space. Now, I could be dead wrong. And a lot of, you know, when you talk to, to theater goers, there's such pent up demand for the theater right now. So we can come back and all of a sudden we're going to see people wanting to go there and all of a sudden we'll be able to, you know, dynamically price our tickets up because there, there is demand. But I think in this moment, we're all kind of, you know, waiting for the moment of putting stuff on sale and people not buying. And I think that also, I know this is a long answer, but I think this is also related to the fact of that buyer habits are going to change. On Broadway, everything was about building your advance, trying to get people to commit in advance to your show to make sure that, you know, and you get that compression in, in your houses so that when there's, when there's scarcity of inventory, that's when prices can go go up a little bit. I think it's going to be different when we come back because I think it's going to be a lot of within seven day purchases. I'm going to say, oh, wow, on, on Sunday night, I feel I actually feel pretty good. And maybe I want to go see that play on Thursday night and I'll buy a ticket on a Sunday versus maybe, you know, before the pandemic, I was like, oh, maybe this early March week, you know, maybe I can get a nice Tuesday night ticket to see that show. I think it's going to be a lot of closer to performance conversion happening more than ever before. And so all the walk up is going to be kind of a bigger factor. And we're all going to be nail biting until then, which is really tough for shows to kind of uh, internalize in this moment, because, you know, we're after so much time off, we want to see that money coming in. But I think it can come in, it just might only happen in the week. Right. I, it's that it's that tricky thing of, as you say, there's the diehard theater fans who will probably be willing to show up for, you know, any price, any ticket, any show in that in those first couple of weeks, but knowing that that's not enough to fill, you know, the house at every show for probably even a, a full eight show week of performances across forty houses. So that's all post pandemic. 
soon may it come. But let's talk about what's going on right now. I wanted to talk to you today because during the shutdown, uh, you've launched this blog called Theatre 2050, where you discuss a number of sort of possible eventualities and alternate universes of kind of what American theatre might look like in the year 2050. What made you choose that year? What What about 2050 sort of spoke to you as a good put a put a flag in the ground and and that's what we'll look at yeah so there's two reasons why i chose 2050 for me i thought like a half century check-in where we are was kind of an interesting kind of thing to put out there an aspiration that didn't seem too far away but 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 was kind of halfway through the century i was just thinking about how we kind of look in how we looked in 2000 how if, if we look back at 50 years before that, we were kind of in the golden age of Broadway, which to all of us seems like so long ago, but it really wasn't that long ago. So when you think about, you know, we're in the first 20 years of, of this year's cycle, of this, you know, century cycle. And, you know, we, we had 9-11, which is one of our worst moments, to 20 years of growth to now, which we're living through the worst case scenario where we can't play. And the next 30 years are going to be charted by how we respond to this moment. And for me, checking in in 2050 seemed to be a really interesting way of kind of kind of making like a little bit of a halftime report on the century, if you will. And that's why kind of why I, I did that. The other reason why is because I'm hoping that by 2050 is kind of the time that me and my wife, maybe we're kind of like winding down, you know, the active part of our lives and we can start traveling and going to see, you know, shows and, and experience the world. And I, I just, I thought the idea of kind of putting out some of these uh, ideas into the world and seeing how, what, what what happens from it? What what like, was I wrong? If I listen back to some and read back to some of what I'm writing, you know, you know, in 2050, was I right about stuff? Was I dead wrong? Was I you know 10 years ahead of my time? Was I 20 years you know, behind the times? I, I thought it'd be a kind of a fun time capsule in kind of where we are versus you know where we will be in 2050. Sure. So was it something that you came up with? once the shutdown had started and kind of the events of last year had already started taking place? Or is this an idea you'd been harboring for a while? I started thinking about Theatre 2050 when I was living in London in 2013, 2014. And it was something that had kind of come sparked from something from an assignment I'd had. And, and it's, it started me kind of doing some private writing about the theatre. It was just me kind of getting certain ideas about the future that I had. And a lot of the stuff I talk about now was stuff that I, I'd started thinking about then. It was just kind of private writing stuff. I kind of had put down there ideas that, oh, that this would be really great if that happened. But once this uh, pandemic happened, and I was a month or two into it, I just I I started looking through the ideas again, and I just said, what better time while we're shut down and while we can be having some of these conversations to maybe spark that conversation? And that's basically what I did. I, I opened up some of these old things. And I just started writing about some of these subjects I've been talking about for a long time and trying to react to certain things that are happening in the industry as well. So it, as, as much as it, it definitely is a reflection of this moment, it actually started about, you know, 2013, 2014. I want to go through some of the ideas you've um, you've discussed on it so far. One of the first things that you touched on, which I know you're very passionate about from discussions that uh, we've had in the past, is uh, the broadcast and streaming of Broadway shows. We're getting there slowly and new presidents are being set all the time. The biggest one most recently, I think, being Hamilton hitting Disney Plus as sort of a currently running big hit show, uh, opening itself up in that way. Um, there's also the continuing evolution of platforms like Broadway HD and those kind of things, but it's still kind of seen as a, as a novelty thing for a show to do. What do you think needs to happen to change that 
and to realize a world in which getting a professionally recorded capture of your big hit Broadway show put out into the world is a standard move as part of having a show on Broadway. Yeah, that, and that's where I started, I, where I start the argument. I think there needs to be a fundamental shift in how we look at producing theater. I, I, I take it even before we even talk about the digital part. I believe that we need to start capitalizing our, our productions, whether it's a Broadway or other first-class commercial uh, productions. They need to be capitalized with the digital, the budget for the digital capture as a part of it. And I believe that within the first month of a show, we should be digitally capturing all of our shows and editing them within a couple of, you know, hopefully a couple months of that and having almost a second opening and do a digital worldwide opening of a show. And we should be starting to digitally distribute shows immediately, not wait till the end of a run, which is kind of a customary thing that a lot of, you know, shows have chosen to do, especially in the last, you know, 10, 20 years. But I think they need to be happening concurrently. I think as you brought up Hamilton, but there's there's examples. The thing, the, the way I look at this is where is the example of a feature film or a capture taking away from box office business in any way? Now, admittedly, from a, from a digital capture perspective, there really hasn't been that kind of timing of a, a digital capture happening concurrently other than really Hamilton. But like if we look at Fan of the Opera, which had a movie in I think 2014, 20, 2004, 2005, I mean, that, that the grosses of that show were actually not looking great during that time. And I believe the movie was one of the things that kept Phantom running until you know, until the shutdown now. And you could say the same about Chicago. Chicago had run, uh, run five or six years before uh, the movie came out in, in 2000, and it won the best picture, and it's still running on Broadway. So I think we learned in these two huge examples that, if anything, it's a huge marketing opportunity to have your show out there in the world. And I believe that that is the next frontier of Broadway and, and the theater in general. I think there is an argument to be made that, that someone will contrast with me about domestic uh, <laughs> domestic distribution of it because of the touring market. And you don't want to cannibalize that. And I, I, I get that. And I think that that's maybe a little bit ways away. But I believe international distribution needs to happen immediately. I, when we look at Broadway audiences of the last 20 years, the, the biggest area of growth is that international audiences now make up 19% of Broadway audiences. So I go, when I look at that, I say, what are we doing to cultivate, first of all, more international audiences, but what, what are we doing for the audiences who we've gotten while they're in their home countries? And to me, it's providing Broadway while they're at home. We need to, it, 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 for me, it, it's about trying to get these people to, to, first of all, monetize them, but also just kind of get them involved in the idea of Broadway and lifting the brand of Broadway by ha- by making it available to, to across the world. And just by having that available and and the world being able to see the work, I feel like that automatically will elevate kind of what we think of as 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 frankly as live theater. And so as people are planning their their trips to New York, Broadway will just inherently become a big part of that. Now, a huge issue here with digital distribution is always it's always oh it's never the same as it is in the theater, and the digital capture is never great. And that's usually where the conversation ends. For me, I believe that's where it begins. I, I really believe that. It, we we have to become a little bit like self a little less self-loathing about and, and more confident about what we're doing in the theater. I understand that what we create in theaters cannot be replicated in another in another way. And and I fully admit that and that's what makes theater so wonderful. But that doesn't mean we can't do have a digital dis- version of of that that show that we could disseminate internationally that could help market Broadway and also bring in revenue for artists in this moment. And that's where, where my, my head goes. I feel like the idea of having a digital, some kind of digital capture that's pretty good is better than nothing, especially in this moment where I, I, I keep saying it this way. We are living through the worst case scenario 
of, of our industry right now. The fact that we cannot perform at all is the most horrible thing I can even think of in this in, in, uh, from our industry. So for us not to come out of this with another way of trying to pay artists in this moment, by being, if we had this, this system in place by now, there could have been some kind of a, a different deal made with you know with uh, some of the unions to try and get a little bit more money paid to all the artists involved with the show and at least get a little bit of money going in there. I don't I I'm not going to sit here and say it's going to you know save everybody's you know wallets because you know we're doing dis- digital distribution. But I truly believe that if we don't come back with something that helps people during a potential of this happening again, I, I just think we've failed. I really believe this is that moment to do that. And we are going to fall behind if we don't fully embrace this. I really believe that's, that it's going to be to the detriment of Broadway if we don't learn our mistake from this and try to do something. And it's going to take a lot of compromise. I really believe this is that moment. Mm. I think there's there's quite a few different topics on which people are coalesced on this idea of if we don't take this moment to figure out, uh, you know, how we can improve, and we just go back to doing everything the way things were, then um, this is it, this will have been wasted time, not just on Broadway, but like across the board. It's my biggest worry. It really is. So let's talk about something a little more jolly, shall we? Uh, you've also put up a number of posts about the possibility of a future National Theatre of the United States, which I think is an amazing idea. What was your inspiration for that series? And what do you see the value of it being to American theatre kind of as a whole? You've written about it more than once at this point. Why is it that this particular idea is so important to you in terms of what the theatre landscape looks like in 2050? I always say that it starts from a place of embarrassment as an American, because I did a little research on this, and every NATO country and every G7 country has a national theatre. That means that places like North Macedonia have a national theatre. How does the United States of America not have some kind of operation that is a national theater? So really, it starts there and being like, how is that even possible? But for me, it really comes down to kind of the future of the theater and, and where we, where can we be going? And I think the and, and the future, frankly, of our country in the sense of, of how we communicate with each other. I really believe a national theater can provide a national platform for conversation and, and engagement with ideas that that frankly are not happening right now. And I think. Uh, something that is federally funded to really do that, I think, is really important. I think in this moment, it, it's being amplified, and you're starting to see people talk about a, a federal theater project, which I think is really exciting. And that's people are relating it to 100 years ago when the WPA kind of started the federal theater project, and that was that was a huge uh, kind of a jobs program. But for me, the, the, the federal theater project feels temporary; it has a, has an end date. A national theater is something that is sustainable over over kind of the period of our country, and so I hope that maybe as we keep talking about this, maybe we can even shift it into talking more about the national theater, and because for me that, that that doesn't have a kind of a, an end date there. That's a sustainable thing, and for me, it's about trying to learn more about each other through the theater. And so my my, my big idea with the national theater is that it would be decentralized. I mean, it's very easy to say, let's put it in New York, the DC, you know, LA, maybe like, like it, it's very easy to do that. For me, I would love a rotating one where once a year it sh- it shifts location. So one year it's in Idaho, one year it's in Iowa, one another year it's in Alabama. And I think it, it, it would be a really interesting place. First of all, it creates a destination theater for for a moment by funding regional theaters who are doing national theaters, or we take over, you know, the big roadhouses and do, you know, plays and musicals and whatever happenings to and if they're engaged, you know, whatever that state is about. But for me, it, it, it's also about trying to kind of disseminate stories from different parts of the country so we can learn from each other. Um, so there's that part of it. I also think there should be a huge kind of touring element of, of 
of a national theater. With, and for me, the, the, for me, the biggest part of the national theater is an education kind of segment. I, I would say like a, a third of the budget should be spent on education and, and hiring an army of, you know, of actors and other practitioners to bring theater into schools and different communities who don't get that kind of programming ever. And to, to try to use the theater as the place for conversation. That That's, that's been kind of my, my overarching thing. I, I don't really feel like in this country, there is a place to have true conversations about important issues. The news is, is currently, you know, the, the, the news media is currently failing at that in kind of a spectacular way as we've learned over the last couple of decades. And I really think that the theater is, you know, an exciting place for those conversations to have. And when things spark up, you know, like, like the Black Lives Matter movement and, and some of the other things that have come up, what a, what a wonderful place to have those kind of conversation in the theater where, where there's always been kind of that kind of conversation happening. But to kind of have a national theater as the platform for that, I think, could be pretty exciting. And I know that the idea of this is, will, would become very politicized. It would be expensive. But I, I continue to think that, you know, there, there's, a, there's a way forward. And I would hope that maybe in the Biden administration, there would be a commission that would be created to to look into the idea of how there would be a, a uniquely American national theater. I don't think it could be like, like, like what, what it is in other countries. I think it needs to be a uniquely American uh, way. And I think there's some exciting things that could happen from that. And I hope that I see it in my lifetime. That's, it's one of the, another thing of theater 2050 if, of, you know, my wish list of my lifetime, I would love to, when I'm in, in, in 2050 to go to the national theater of the United States. That's, that's a goal, you know? <laughs> Sure. Yeah, that sounds great. It's funny, I didn't really think about it until you just said it just now. But I was when you were talking about education programs through a national theater, I was thinking like, well, you know, like it's, you know, that's nice for the theater kids, uh, I guess. But you know, what else does it really do? And then I was thinking, actually, it's it's the reason that I that I do what I do, because there was an education program through the National Theater in the UK called National Theatre Connections that um, my school, I guess, participated in when I was 13, maybe. You put together a, a show like you normally would at high school, but then you got to take it to different, to like a handful of different theatres in the area as well and kind of put it up in several different places and like really have that experience of, uh, of taking a show into a professional theatre. And actually, the more I think about it, like the more that was a real turning point in terms of it being a hobby to it being a career. No, and that's, and that's where I go. And, and, and it's like, for me, it's not even about like growing an army of people, of, of theatre people. It's, it, it's a growing an army of citizens who engage with the arts. That's what's so exciting. When you see a moment like they're on inauguration day, when Amanda Gorman became an, a, a, an instant kind of sensation in this moment, a poet in, in, our, in our lifetime, a young poet who's 22 and, and an African-American woman, it was an unbelievable moment that, we're, that we'll remember forever. And I want a million more of those moments from a national theater, people seeing engaging with the arts in a, in a different way. And even if they become a banker or a lawyer, they're going to think differently because they've had an education somehow and engagement somehow in the theater. And uh, yeah, I did, the idea of nationalizing that in some way to make sure that, that after you know decades of you know arts cuts in schools and everything like that, the fact that there's a specific initiative funding that kind of work, I think it could fundamentally change our company, our, our company, our our country. Um, which is it, it sounds pie in the sky, but uh, I think it's possible. <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, another one of my favorite articles you wrote, just because it was so detailed and painted such a vivid picture, was this idea of a Broadway headquarters, like a real destination for what's called 
Broadway for tourists and nothing like that really exists right now. There's the theater district, but that's, you know, a pretty sizable part of Midtown. And the closest kind of pinpointable location that we have is pretty much the TKTS booth. What was your thinking with this Broadway HQ idea? Like, what do you think a building like that would bring to the picture? It started with exactly what you were just saying. It's like, if I'm a a tourist coming to New York and I want to go to Broadway, what's Broadway to to people coming into the city? It's you go into the the street of Broadway, but like, okay, Times Square, that's great. But like, yeah, our focal point is the TKTS booth, which is wonderful. And it's been, you know, for decades, been fantastic. But the focal point is discount tickets. That, that, that is what we we're telling people, that the place to go for Broadway is the discount ticket booth in the center of, of Times Square. For me, I want to see a Broadway headquarters that introduces you to what Broadway is. I want to see something that that when you walk in is a, is a welcome center. It tells you what's playing. What are the prices? When are they playing? What, what, what is the history of Broadway? What, what is let's have a place where it's like a fan HQ where you, you can see the community come alive every day, whether it's, you know, and we do lotteries there, you do podcast, you know, we record this podcast from the Broadway Welcome Center. For me, it's exciting to kind of create, they talk about with organizations about vertical integration and kind of like bringing everything in house. The idea of vertically integrating Broadway with all the different entrepreneurs that are working in, in different companies is really exciting to me. The idea of having rehearsal studios over a bunch of different floors, offices, conference rooms, um, restaurants, and uh, areas for groups to meet, and all these different kind of things we can build in one building. The idea of that just felt like kind of the, the next generation of how we look at Broadway. We, we need to be able to kind of service people to kind of show us who we are and how you engage with Broadway. And hopefully it's not just telling them how to, you know, buy it, buy, you know, your ticket to your show, but it's what, what other experiences could be happening? Are there theater tours? Are there, you know, are there other parts of the city that, you know, like let's do a, a Hamilton tour that goes up to the, you know, to, up to Washington Heights. It does that kind of stuff. Like there's so many different things we could be doing with a, at a headquarters specifically that could really centralize how people look at Broadway. And to me, it, it feels like it, it's, you know, one of those pie in the sky things, but you never know if someone wants to make that their legacy. That's what I keep saying. I would love for someone to say like, I want my legacy to be like, we're going to build the Broadway welcome center. Um, and that's, that, that, I just think that's a really cool way that we can really engage with all the, as the audiences shift and we're seeing less New Yorkers going and we're seeing more domestic and international tourists coming, how are we servicing these people? And I think that having an official place could be a game changer for our industry. I highly recommend checking that article out, by the way, just because Andrew goes into so much detail. It's like, he's your little elevator attendant taking you up floor by floor. And it's uh, it's really, yeah. really interesting. It paints a very clear picture of this completely fantastical building, but hopefully one day less fantastical we'll see yeah as i yeah as i was working on it i just couldn't figure out the best way to kind of articulate that and i'm like what if i just did it floor by floor <laughs> and that's exactly how i ended up looking at it and it was it was exciting to see it kind of come together that way and what's next in terms of your uh in in terms of your thought stream on this do you have any plans for future articles that you wouldn't mind sharing yeah i haven't talked enough on theater 2050 about uh, theatrical spaces and that's really kind of the next frontier of what i'll be talking about a lot it's what i did a lot of my graduate work on as we build a new theaters around the world, the idea that, of building new proscenium arch theaters is just going to seem kind of so out of date and not with what, what we want to be building as we keep moving forward. And the idea of basically any theater that we're building is to be flexible because we want 
writers and artists to kind of not not to be thinking in a proscenium way. We as we as we become more of an on demand generation, we what we, we always are just kind of watching television or watching the screen. We want the theater to feel different than that kind of relationship as we're there. So I just think that's going to become more and more apt of why should why should I go to the theater versus sit on my couch and watch everything I'm paying for on demand? We need to be giving people a reason to want to go to a space. And I think that it comes from creating interesting spaces for people to be in. And post-COVID, I think over the next five, 10 years, it's going to be so important that when I want to go see a play, it's because I want to not only see the play, I want to have an experience and be in something different. And so there's a lot of that. I really want to talk about um, uh, virtual reality and augmented reality and how that's going to potentially change the industry, whether that be for how we perform or create new different kinds of theater. But for me, it's also just trying to look into some of these ideas I've already kind of brought up, some of the digital distribution, the national theater, and going deeper into so all of these subjects to try and kind of lay out why I think these things can be attainable in, in before twenty before twenty fifty, and then just continue to advocate for the, the, these different uh, different things. But uh, yeah, there's there's a lot more coming in a bunch of different ways. Uh, even I recently wrote an article recently about. Uh, the New York City ID card and how that relates to how we can potentially, you know, provide incentives for people to come back from a ticket perspective. There's different things I'm thinking about all the time that I'm I'm hoping to kind of continue to cultivate them and see if these any of these ideas can happen. I want to touch on the on the space thing that you just said about like about constructing some spaces that are less traditional in their uh, in their kind of setup. Do you have any specific venues in mind when you talk about like what the ideal sort of future theater space is? Are there any New York theaters that you think are filling that right now that we just need more of? Or is this a completely new thing that you think needs to be built? I have about 10 different articles in my head that are going to be talking just about this subject. <laughs> because there's so many different kinds of models. Like from a touring perspective, there's a wonderful company in England called Plains, Payne's Plow that built a roundabout theater. That's this theater that you could put together with an Allen wrench. And I, I love the idea of being able to just pop up these touring theaters or all around the country. It's so like little things like that I, I really love. But for me, when it comes to theatrical spaces, I, I think it's going to be all about becoming more than just a theater. I really think that, that we're, and you see it more in Europe than you see it in in. New York, especially, but other than like the public, where they've you know kind of built restaurants and you know cafes and those kind of things in there, that's very, a lot more common in the UK. And the idea of a theater just not being a theater, but a place you can stop in and just kind of grab a cup of coffee, or there's a bookstore and go to the bookstore, or the National Theater, which has spent you know millions of dollars. You know, they built like a pub on the South Bank, like those kind of things. And people don't think, oh, if they're going to the understudy at the National, that oh, I'm going to the theater. But they are. They're engaging with the theater, and they're they're getting advertising for the theater. They're they're. they're I think that's going to become a big thing as a theater, not just being a theater, but a place to kind of come together, whether it be to go to the theater or not. And I think spaces like I think the public when when they redid the the library downtown, but when they built a like a restaurant in there, I think that that's really great. Um, I, I just love places like the the Park Avenue Armory, which are just so enormous, and you could just build so many wonderful things within that kind of space. I'm a big fan of. But a lot of them are, are really mostly outside of this country. I think places like the Young Vic in London, I love going there. And every time I go there, I get a drink and then I walk into a world I don't really know what I'm going to see. I love that every time I walk in there, the seating configuration is kind of different. Um, mm. And I think, that's, that, I think that's the point. It's, it's going to be w- what makes you feel different about it. And, I, I'm not, and I'm not saying every piece of theater in 10 years is going to be you know, an immersive theater piece like Punch Drunk. But I think that there's going to be a little bit more hybrid when we talk about, you know, what, what what writers and directors are thinking about, and hopefully the spaces can match to it. 
Um, I think there's a lot of work to do in that realm, but it, and it's a huge risk because you know building you know these you know multi million dollar theaters is it's a lot of risk to be able to kind of not know what the type of work you're programming, but I think it's going to take some intrepid you know developers to really make and 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 funders to make that happen. There's one theater that I'm really excited about to to see open in the next couple of years is the Perlman Center downtown. I believe that near World Trade, which is going to be a flexible theater that will be hosting international work. And so to see that happening in New York City again, I'm really excited to see a new a real New York kind of flexible space do that kind of work. Um, and, and there's already that with the shed that, that was built uh, on the Hudson Yards. It's exciting to see those spaces pop up all over New York, but we just need more of it. And we need, you know, and we just need, we need to see some, you know, some more high, frankly, more high profile people, you know, being in part of those shows and bringing more people into those spaces so that when more daring work comes in, you know, we can have an audience for it. And uh, last thing on theater 2050 you kind of mentioned earlier when we were talking about the reasons why you chose that year that you you kind of wanted something to look back on when uh when you when you you believe at least at the moment you you may be reaching kind of the end of your working career do you think you'll you'll seal it up kind of like a time capsule at some point so that you have something to look back on or is the the plan to just kind of keep going through with this um, until that year comes 29 years from now. So the idea right now is to just write as much as possible during this kind of uh, down period. Um, and, you know, I, I'm hope, I have some aspirations to hope maybe I'll write this as a book and kind of put everything together in kind of a, a new kind of way of looking at it than just kind of these sporadic articles that I'm writing. Um, but uh, there's a couple of different ways I'd like to kind of potentially uh, use Theater 2050 kind of just raise the, the platform for these ideas. But I think eventually maybe, maybe, my, maybe life will take me a different way. And maybe I won't be writing anymore as much as I would. But even as I think about it, I, 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 the idea of even just doing an annual check-in, if, if, that, if that's what it ends up being, you know, you know, 10 years from now, if I start to stop writing regularly, the idea of saying, oh, wow, well, I wrote about this then and that never happened or this happened. And that, that's really exciting. Um, the idea of maybe an annual check-in and that w- w- could be a, a pretty exciting thing here. Um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see what people are interested in hearing about. Yeah, absolutely. So to, to go back to talking, uh, I want to finish by talking about the return of Broadway um, in a, a little more detail. I know that we've touched on it a few times, but uh, to talk specifically about that. Um, and again, to talk specifically about it from the point of view of a ticketing professional, I think one of my frustrations as a data analyst working in the theater space, and this isn't just a Broadway thing, it's true in the West End and on tours and kind of in every market that I've been in, is that we kind of like to say that we are, you know, increasingly listening to the data, but ultimately we're seeing, you know, the same kinds of shows being produced and the same kind of pitfalls being fallen into because the top level decisions that get made for shows are all based, you know, still on opinions and instincts of a relatively small group of people. Given that years of experience will only go so far on the other side of a once in a lifetime pandemic, do you think we might start seeing more attention paid to data rather than instinct in the way that Broadway shows are run, both from a ticketing perspective and and just in terms of, you know, deciding what kind of shows to put on in the first place. I think that there is some soul searching going on in the theater in this moment, but putting it into practice, just generally, I think it's just it's just gonna be a longer term project versus in the immediate. And for me that I think that there is going to be a lot of holding on to, oh, well, well, who was coming? Like, who was coming before? Why aren't they coming now? And it, it's, I think there's going to be a lot of those kind of questions as we, as marketers, as we look at, at shows and try to understand, you know, 
who's coming now? Are they different from the people we had before? So for me, in the initial kind of three to six months, it's going to be like, who's coming to the theater? Are, are they different from who we were seeing over the two years prior to that? I think there's going to be a lot of that. But for me, it's also, it's, it's what we're, sh- what, what, we are able to get, but also what, what are we sharing with the public? So I know what's like one of my big soapboxes has been that I believe we should start, we should stop uh, reporting the grosses publicly over the, every week as that, that has been a practice, you know, for decades on Broadway. I think it's, and, and I know that as you broke on your podcast, that, that, that uh, the league is talking about not doing it in the initial moment until there's a full season that happens. And I really applaud the league for making, for seeing the merits in that, in this moment. I hope that as an industry, when we look at that and we see how we can build back the industry in there, that we decide to do that forever. I, I really hope that that is where we go because I, I don't, I think that that is a huge kind of pressure that shows have is to, it's that we kind of expose every show to having their numbers out there in a moment where they don't really need to know that it's, it's on the producers and the production to know how their shows are doing and market them to ensure that, you know, <laughs> that they're, they're, they're staying profitable and doing what we can to get there. But I really think that that, that shift will be a, a huge burden off of certain shows and let certain shows have the opportunity to find their audience. And that's always been my, my biggest struggle. You find a, a play that doesn't have a huge marketing budget and they're really waiting for that opening night to kind of get there. And then if, they, if they're selling, you know, $400,000 in a week, they're just cast it off by the industry and by potential audiences instead of it being about, oh, let's let, let's let, how do we get word of mouth on a, on a play that doesn't have a star or something else? Let that happen. It, 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 I think taking the numbers out of the public mindset and, and having it go back towards the, the work that we're producing, I think is going to be critical for us. I think it's going to help new plays kind of find an audience and find maybe a revival of something that maybe didn't, that, you know, that we haven't seen in a while and connect with a star or something else. I think it'll, it'll, it'll have a different ring if we're not focusing on how much money does, you know, Bette Midler making Hello Dolly versus, oh, wow, people are really coming and enjoying it. I, I feel like it, we, we've focused so much on the commerce part of it when, from audiences. I feel like in the end, like people really don't care about that. <laughs> people, right. people care about having a wonderful experience. And yeah, oh, if it's a tight ticket, that's great. But it's not because they're not going to see Hello Dolly because, oh, it was grossing $2 million at some point. That's an industry thing that we right. kind of like, love to talk about and gossip and have fun with. But to audiences, it's about being at, in a special, in a special place, in a special in, on Broadway, having that experience. It's not about that kind of stuff. So I know I'm kind of sidestepping your question a little bit, but I think for me, it's it's getting away from some of that data, and and really focusing more on what we're producing. While at the same time, as us as marketers, right, we're all going to kind of try and understand who's coming to our to our shows now and try to to understand how can we find more people like them in this moment and i think that's going to be a real struggle at first but we'll get there i want to wrap up by again going back to something that we touched on earlier but i just want to ask it a little bit more broadly um we talked about broadway needs to to learn a few lessons when we were talking about um digital and streaming and that kind of thing in terms of day to day and the business side of how broadway is run what do you think needs to be fundamentally changed when we come back what do you think the industry as a whole might have learned from this downtime or what what do you hope the industry will have learned from this downtime for me it's I'll, i'll start by saying it's all about flexibility I think that the industry has has kind of learned what what they have kind of rested on its laurels about what the theater is and what and that that's kind of it. The idea of flexibility, I think, is going to have to be the next the theme of the next ten years of Broadway. It starts for me with with ticketing in the sense of 
if, if I'm getting flexible airline tickets or other kind of experiences are offering flexibility, Broadway needs to match that. We need to be as flexible as other industries. We, I mean, when I, 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 in normal times when I would go to the movies, I could, you know, I could return a ticket if I decided an hour before. We need to try and find what the Broadway version of flexibility is going to be. And it also comes to flexibility when it comes to different policies we've had about, it, about you know, we want to make sure that people are, you know, staying healthy and safe and not worrying about their theater tickets being the thing that, you know, is the, is the reason that they're maybe go to a show sick or something like that. So the idea of flexibility, I think, is going to be a, a huge factor here. And for me, it's it's going to also be down to what what are the things we feel like we can impact in this moment? I mean, I, I know we've talked about a lot of different things. The digital distribution thing is something that I just feel like it has to happen now. It has to happen in these next couple of years. So that we can really see the impact of it in the next five, 10 years. I really believe that we can't use the arguments of the past, the things that have held us up to thwart any kind of progress. It's really time to take, take some of these arguments that we've had and some of these preconceived notions about the theater and stuff. We need to just re-examine everything. And I really hope that over the next couple of years, we really re-examine every part of our industry how could, to, to realize how could it be more equitable and how could, how could we grow our brand to bring more money for artists? That, that's really what, where my focus becomes, is how can we kind of grow the pot in the brand of Broadway so that it becomes the standard and it becomes you know, the, the, the place where people can always feel comfortable making a living, um, which from an industry perspective is just very important to me. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Theatre 2050's Andrew Lowy. And you can read up on Andrew's takes on what 2050 looks like for Broadway at theatre2050.com. That's theatre with an R-E and the number's 2050. And of course, you can sign up for ticket alerts for the return of Harry Potter and the Cursed Child across North America and around the world at harrypotteretheplay.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please do share it on social media and head on over to your podcast app of choice to rate, review, and subscribe. Putting It Together is produced by Dory Berenstein and Alan Seals for the Broadway Podcast Network. Our theme music is by Euless Pecan, and artwork and editing is by me, Ollie Southgate. You can find me on Twitter, I'm at Ollie Southie, or take a look at my website, that's ollysouthgate.com. In both cases, my name is spelled with an I-E, not a Y. I'll be back on the first Friday of March, so that's Friday, March 5th. But until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.
Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.